like for you to uh, look at two passages of Scripture back-to-back. First in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, if you'd like to uh, turn to page 858 in the Pew Bible. Luke, chapter 3, we have... uh, the cousin of Jesus, John, John the Baptist, and he is preaching uh, outside in a deserted area, and many people have come to him, and they are responding to his message of repentance. And when we come to verse 10 in Luke chapter 3, we have some questions for John. And hear God's word. And the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now let me ask you to turn to to Matthew chapter 6. Just back up a few chapters. Matthew chapter 6, page 811 to verses 19 and following. Hear God's word, beginning verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If in the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So ends the reading of God's holy word. In the passage from from Luke we just read, John the Baptist is, is preaching and Crowds have come, they've gathered to hear him, and three different groups, those three, the section we read represented three different groups of people. They're asking him, what should we do to bear the fruit of repentance? How should our lives show forth if we truly believe this and are following what you teach? In other words, what changes should be seen in our lives to demonstrate our commitment to God? And John gives three answers, and we read them. In verse 11, his answer was, Well, everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. Then he gave a second answer in verse 13. Tax collectors should not pocket extra money. The tax system was built on extortion, so he was saying don't do that. And then in verse 14, he gives the third answer to the third group. Soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money through force. Now what's very unusual about that is all three answers relate to money and possessions. 
But no one had asked him about money and possessions. They had asked, what should they do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation? John knew that a person, that a person's approach to money and possessions is central to their spiritual life. And so he could not talk about true spirituality, true commitment to God, true repentance, without talking about money and possessions and generosity. The second passage from Matthew 19, Matthew 6, verse 19, is from the longest sermon that we have by Jesus in the Bible, the sermon he preached on the mountain. And he, in that sermon, is describing what a true lover of God looks like, what a true believer, a true Christian. And halfway, this is about the halfway point through the sermon, it covers three chapters. Halfway through, he says something so radical at that time, it's so unnatural, it's almost outrageous that it takes reality and turns it upside down. Now pretend you've never heard verse 19. But when he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, what's the obvious question if you've never heard that? Where else can you store them? If not here and now, then where and when? And he goes on to explain what he's talking about, first in the negative sense, then in the positive. In the negative, he says, do not store up. And he's not only talking about money, cash, as we think of. Treasures is a very broad term, speaking not so much about only our possessions, but our attitude toward those possessions that become treasure to us. And then he goes even deeper. It's a question of your whole attitude toward life in this world. So Jesus really is dealing here with where you and I gain security, where we gain fulfillment, where we gain satisfaction. And he is warning them and us not to confine our interest, our ambitions, our satisfaction, our hopes in this life to earthly things because they're temporary. They are only temporary. We all have treasures in some shape, fashion, or form. And it may be different for every one of us. It may be a spouse or a child or grandchildren, or it may be some giftedness you have, or it may be your health, or it may be actual money or worth in the bank. It, it, it could be your house. It could be an activity. It could be, it could be anything of a temporal nature. So no matter what it is, how big or small it is, if it's everything to you, that's your treasure. That, that's the thing for which you are living. And maybe it changes from month to month or year to year. And there's the danger Jesus is warning about with this point is that anything that stops with this life in this world, you should be careful that's not where your treasure is. And so you could ask yourself, will this thing, with this interest, will this hope, will this goal, with this possession, end with this life? I heard a preacher from this pulpit one time long ago say, women, where's everything in your house going to end up? In the hands of another woman. I've never forgotten that. It didn't just have application for women. It's for all of us. Where will everything? I was looking around, I probably the most uh, sentimental things I have is a Martin guitar my parents gave me long ago. 
I have a Gibson guitar that's late 1950s. You know, you know, you know Bob. I mean, it's, uh, it's special. I got that in high school. And I was thinking, I'm just using these for a little bit. Who will have these in the future? Somebody will. Somebody I know, somebody I don't know, or either they may get burned up or stolen or, or something like that. He's saying that if we treasure certain things and if we're storing up treasure, it's temporary. It, it's, it's not going to last. But now the positive side in verse 20. Is don't store up that type, but do store for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now we have to look at other verses of Scripture, and it's the basic rule of biblical interpretation is always interpret Scripture with Scripture. If you have an area, a verse that's not too clear, find another verse or passage that's dealing with the same subject that may help clarify it. Well, we have several other uh, passages in the New Testament that use the same terminology. And one of the clearest is in the letter of 1 Timothy. That's, Timothy was a pastor in the ancient city of Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul is writing to him, telling him basically, to use our vernacular, how to do church. This is how you set up a church. This is what a church should uh, prioritize and what you should do. And in his instruction to Timothy, he makes some comments about instructions about money. And he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. There's that same theme. It's, it's temporary. It won't last. But tell them to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And then here's the direct parallel to the Sermon on the Mount. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In other words, to summarize, to paraphrase that statement, if you've been blessed with riches, use them in such a way in this world that you will be building up a balance for the next world. That's the bottom line of what's being, being taught. Well, how do we put this into practice? That's the hard part. Well, it begins with a right view of life. The Bible tells us there is a God. It doesn't try to prove that there's a God. It doesn't try to answer all the possible uh, arguments why there isn't a God. It makes that assumption that there is a God and that he created everything and that he created humans and our first ancient parents that were called Adam and Adam named the woman Eve. And they were alive physically, spiritually, but they, something happened that changed all of that and they disobeyed God. They broke a commandment that he gave them. And the Bible calls that sin. And the result of that was that they died. Not physically, that happened much later, but they died on the spot spiritually. They suffered the consequences of their, their sin, their crime against God. But even in punishing them, as God had told them what would happen, that they would die that day, he promised a redeemer who would come later to make things right. And you and I are born where Adam and Eve ended up. We are born spiritually dead. We are born separated from God. And so we, we aren't born with that spiritual sense that they started off with. But we have these same problems of sin and the resulting death, that we've committed crimes against God. And he says the punishment or the wages of those 
is death. So it's natural to think that we can do good things that will outnumber the bad things that we do. If I just try hard enough, then God will at least see the good intentions of my motives, even if I don't score very highly, and that will make me right with him. Surely he'll take all that into account. He will accept me, but the Bible clearly teaches there is nothing, nothing you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God with our own efforts. All the good deeds, all the right motivations, or whatever, whatever we may bring to the table is not enough. So that we call the bad news. And if we stop there, there's no hope for any of us. But God in his love and his mercy sent. He fulfilled that promise he made to Adam and Eve that he would send a redeemer, and that was Jesus. He became a man. No other substitute would do. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be tried and convicted and nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. When God put him on the cross, he put my sin on him. He punished my sin in Jesus. He took my place. He took the punishment and the penalty which I deserve, and he made a complete payment. He died on that cross, for it says the wages of sin is death. His body was taken down from a cross. It was placed in a tomb. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and over a period of 40 days, he appeared to several hundred people. And the Bible tells us before he departed, he ascended to heaven. He told his followers to go into all the world and tell people about this gift of eternal life, which God now offers through Jesus. So you have to begin with, have you received this gift of eternal life? You must believe that Jesus was God's son, that he was perfect, that he died for you, and that you cannot make yourself right with God through your own efforts. That when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus and punished him in your place. Now you turn from going your own way and you turn toward him, living for him as your master. Now, that it begins the process where we see life as pilgrims. That we are walking through this world under the eye of God in the direction toward our everlasting hope, toward him. That's the principle. If you don't have that understanding, the notion of giving, like John Kitchens or anyone else referred to, really doesn't make any sense. It might be therapeutic and help alleviate your guilt for having so much. <laughs> you know how people do that? Here, I've got a second home. I want to use it for a staff retreat. Why? I feel guilty about it. They'll help ease my guilt if somebody else will use it. So, so we can give for all sorts of psychological motives. But if we don't see that we are pilgrims in this world going somewhere else, giving, uh, true giving will not happen. So that's where it starts. If you, were, if you were to come to me and I not know you very well and you were to say, look, you're a pastor, I'm curious about this whole giving, especially this tithing notion I hear used in the church. Explain it to me. I would not start with money. I'd start with what I just told you. In this world, we are pilgrims. We are children of God going to our Father. And that gives us the basis then for how we view life, how we view possessions, and everything else. Because then we see we are not the permanent holders of these things. We are managers. The biblical word is steward, someone that's put in charge of something that belongs to someone else. So that doesn't only apply to, to money and possessions. It's our intellect, it's ourselves, it's our personalities, it's whatever gift and ability you may have is to be used for him. So I, as a manager of that, I am obligated then to use that uh, for him. 
Uh, so I am merely the manager. I cannot take my wealth with me. I can't take anything else with me. I cannot take my spiritual gifts. I am just a custodian of these things. So the question you must face and I face as believers is, how can I use, whatever it is, whatever, how can I use these things to the glory of God? Your business, your abilities, your possessions, your talents, the time you have, the, the freedom you have, the education you have. Because we will all stand before him and I will face him one day. And I will not be judged for sin because Christ has taken those, but I will answer for what I did with the gifts that God gave me and what he entrusted to me as a faithful servant or not. So as Christ's follower, I must carefully think, how do I use these things? What is my attitude toward them? That's the question of laying up treasure in heaven. It all comes back to the question, how do I view myself? How do I view this life? Life in this world? Do you tell yourself every day, as you live, every day of your life, that this day is but another milestone you are passing? You cannot go back to yesterday. It is gone. It has been spent. The 11th of October, 2014, is gone, not to be recovered. And the morning of the 12th is halfway gone. And because I cannot go back, I am taking my tent and I am pitching it each day one day closer to my destination, to my eternal home. Now that's the great principle we have to remind ourselves of, that I am a child of the Father placed here for his purpose and not for myself. And so God has given us this great privilege of living in this world. The life is not to be hated. There's probably nothing more dishonoring to our fathers if we communicate like we hate life as his followers. That should not be. He's given us a great privilege of living in this world, and he's handed to us many, many gifts. Uh, and so I realize that in a sense they're mine, but ultimately they are God's. So I must see them that I'm merely a caretaker and a custodian and a steward. I, that will keep me from clinging, clinging to these things. I do not live for them. They are not to absorb me. I should hold them loosely. And I don't know who said it, but I wrote it down. We are to live in a state of blessed detachment. <laughs> blessed detachment from these things. Okay. In the moments we have, a few principles about giving. First, giving for the believer begins with the heart. It doesn't begin with uh, the checkbook or the debit card. Or, or anything like that. It begins with the person, with, with the heart, with a change of heart when we begin growing in Christ. I started walking with Christ as a, uh, after my junior year in high school. I had heard and understood the gospel about four years before, but God really started working in my life, and I really had a desire to follow him by that time. And tangibly, the first area he dealt with me was giving. I don't remember that I heard it taught on, but I went to a Sunday school at a First Presbyterian Church in Alabama, and we, uh, they, in, in those days, and maybe we still do it here, I'm kind of embarrassed, I don't know, they passed around a little offering plate, I never knew where the money went, but the guy leading our Sunday school class, and there were about eight of us in it, said, why don't we begin to support an orphan through one of the international organizations like World Vision or Compassion International, and it was like $15 a month, and he said, 
Do y'all want to do that? We all said, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, for the first time that I ever remembered, giving now was tangible toward something I could see. Here was a picture of this child, I think, in the Philippines going through this organization, and it went to help provide food and clothing and education for this, this little boy. I, I can't explain it except a change in my heart toward God in general and now toward possessions in particular that I wanted to help. And so with a little bit of money I had, which was about $10 a week at, at that time, you do the math, you can figure out what year I was in high school, and then I, uh, I look forward to, to giving. I would just go and I would give uh, sometimes everything I had into that little offering plate. Now, what did that? Uh, had I lost my mind? Had I suddenly not cared about money? Was I being irresponsible? Just throw it away? You know? No. There was a motivation I never experienced before. There was a motivation that here in God's name that he's entrusted to me, and there's another person over here through this organization that can't help himself. I can help. It was just a whole new sensation. That is probably the most vivid memory of my early Christian days was in the area of giving. So giving begins when you realize your heavenly Father will provide for you. In Matthew 6, later on in the chapter, Jesus is talking still about money and giving and laying up treasure, and he says, don't worry about where you're going to eat or drink or what you'll wear, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And so I remember thinking, I am giving, but I know that you're going to give back, Lord. It wasn't a prosperity gospel kind of thing, like if I give a dollar, you'll, you promise to give me five. No, it was just confident that I'm not going to be at a loss by doing this. God will provide for my needs. Now, verse 21 that we read earlier of Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What this produced in me was now an interest. Okay, how does this organization work? What is Compassion International? And then there would be letters exchanged, which was part of the program with, with this child. Uh, why was now I interested in something that three months before I'd never heard of and could have cared less? Because now my treasure was in it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of you bought Coca-Cola or, or some other stock or Microsoft. I can promise you, if you've never done that, suddenly you'll be interested. You see a headline about Microsoft? Guess which article you're going to read. Coca-Cola? Guess which article you're going to read. Why? Because now your heart's in it. Because your treasure's in it. Your heart is following where you're laying up treasure. My heart will follow where I put God's money. You'll be surprised to see what happens when you reallocate money from temporal things to eternal things. So how is your heart? That's really the question. Is it tender toward God? Is it tender toward the things of God? Or right now, if you were to gauge it today, and I'm not talking about a month ago, six months ago, today, would you say, my heart is really tender toward God. I want to follow him. Or would you say, really, right now, it's pretty calloused. It's calloused. My heart is hard toward God. Second principle about giving is that giving of smaller amounts prepares to give larger amounts. Now, it's common to think, I will give sacrificially, I'll even tithe when, fill in the blank, when education bills are paid off, when uh, kids are out of college, or now kids are out of private school, <laughs> or 
when the mortgage is reduced or when the car, I've got three more years on the car, these medical bills, in 18 months they'll be paid off or, or when I have enough saved for retirement. Listen, there is never a convenient time to give. Never. I've, I've never seen that time come when everything's all paid up and suddenly there's this extra amount of money that could go toward giving. If you wait for that perfect time, it will never happen. Because the challenge of giving sacrificially is always now, today. What we have now, not what we wish for in the future. I had a man once tell me, and he was very sincere. He was complaining about a neighbor who had purchased a very nice travel trailer. And he, I think it was around $40,000. And he said, if I had $40,000, I wouldn't spend it that way. I'd give 10000 to this, and I'd give 10000 to this, and then I'd live off the twenty. And I thought, no, you wouldn't. And here's why I said that. Because you don't do that now with uh, $100. <laughs> I knew him well enough to know there was no giving. So if, if you think it would be easier to give away 20000 then, then 20 out of 100, it won't. It, it, it will not. Uh, Christ said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful in much. He meant we learn to be faithful with small, with small amounts. So if we aren't giving sacrificially with what you have now, you won't give sacrificially when you have more. And that's because there's a spiritual principle at work, and that principle comes up time and time again. It's not how much we have of the world's goods, it's how much God has of us, has of us. People who are very wealthy and generous usually reach those convictions before they had wealth. And secondly, they were generous when they had far less. That's typically what happens. So God wants me, this is my premise, God wants me to obey with my present resources, not with resources I don't have. I'm not responsible for things I don't have. I'm responsible for what he's entrusted to me now. I want to use the last four minutes or so to refresh you about what John Wesley said. Uh, John Wesley, in this area of giving and money, had some very unique views that were well thought out and applied in his own life. Uh, Wesley lived in most of the 18th century. He lived from 1703 to 1791. Uh, of course, the founder ended up being the founder of the Methodist denomination. Um, but his influence was and is felt throughout the whole church, uh, even today. Uh, it, was, it, it was in the, the, the atmosphere of, that would become the American Revolution and uh, a strange time that Wesley spoke very clearly about money and about the Christian life. And he, he gave a short quotation that I've heard repeated many places that John Wesley said, gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Have you ever heard that? Okay, now let me explain what he meant, because that can be misunderstood very easily. Uh, the first thing to understand about Wesley, he was in no way against money. He was not against the emerging market economy then during the 1700s in the U.S. He saw money being put on earth as an example of the, quote, wise and gracious providence of God. And he knew that it wasn't money that's the problem, it's the use of money or the love of it, as the Bible says. And so he was quick to point out all the good that money could do if it was used rightly. Because of money, he said, quote, we may be a defense for the oppressed, a means of health to the sick, 
a means of ease to them that are in pain, end of quote. So money, he said, is the tool by which great good can be done. He also didn't think a Christian should opt for some kind of alternative uh, lifestyle. Like He envisioned Christians working in jobs uh, like everyone else, participating in the market economy like everyone else. And that's reflected in his first rule, gain all you can. There ought to be nothing different about our occupations or work by the Christian except it should be done well. Uh, so he, he said we should engage in work. He wasn't for let's go live off in the woods and just think God's going to supernaturally provide while we do nothing. He, he didn't promote that at all. So that was the first rule of gain all you can. Engage yourself in legitimate work, in industry or whatever to, to make all that you can. Secondly, save all you can. And this is where it's confusing. He wasn't saying stockpile all your money. But he meant that we should scrutinize every expenditure and save money whenever possible, to be as frugal as possible. So he very much opposed frivolous spending, spending large sums on luxurious items, because he saw how good money, the good it could do. And he was diligent to see that money be used rightly. And so his answer for luxury, rather than spending enormous amounts when a less amount would do, it, it, his answer for that was not spending, but it was lay out nothing to gratify the pride of life, to gain the admiration or the praise of men. So he would have kept his lifestyle low, even though make as much as you can. And so he recognized there were some situations that were not clear-cut, and so he offered four questions to help people in spending money. One, in spending this money, am I acting like I own it, or am I acting like I am the Lord's trustee? That was the first question with spending. Second, what scripture requires me to spend this money this way? So he didn't just say... Does Scripture give me this freedom? He was like, am I obligated to spend money this way? Third, can I offer up this purchase as a sacrifice to the Lord? And fourth, will God reward me for this expenditure at the resurrection of the just? <laughs> now, I've never heard that question by anyone else. Will this expenditure that I'm getting ready to make, will God reward me for this? On the, uh, the day of account. Okay, final part, give away all you can. What did he mean? To gain all you can, save all you can through wise spending. And those only make sense with this last one. Give away all you can. A Christian gains and then saves in order to give. That's what he was saying. So we make as much as we can, we save as much as we can by uh, being wise spending so that we may be able to give all that we can. He felt to the person who simply gains money and puts it in the bank and stockpiles it, Wesley said this, you may as well throw your money into the ocean, not to use it as effectually to throw it away. So the reason for all the work, the reason for all the saving, is so that money can be given and thus do good in the world. So Wesley, John Wesley's idea of giving is found in the idea of stewardship, that we are entrusted with personal talents, money, and possessions. We are responsible to God for the use of those gifts. They are not ours to enjoy for our own comfort, but ours to use. By the way, this is part one of a two-part sermon, so I'm going to abruptly 
slam on the brakes right now. Because if you're asking, if I give sacrificially, how will I make ends meet? How will I be able to meet my obligations, to pay bills? Who will take care of me? Well, that's the next part of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And Lord willing, that's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray together. Father, we desire to be your managers. This is a very difficult area in a difficult time when we are very influenced by our culture, more so than we realize. We pray that you'd give us the mind of Christ. Help us to see that we live as pilgrims in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with a short...